we'll have a period of time for some questions and responses. First question, I experience a visual phenomenon similar to night sky of stars as the meditation session is establishing. Although I remind myself not to, it's sort of a pleasant, reassuring event. Has this any significance? Is it unskillful, imaginary distraction? Well, I'd say it is what it is. <laughs> different things happen for different people. We all vary in our characters and conditioning. So I would say just being aware that's the kind of thing that happens when you close your eyes and establish the mind for meditation. The challenge is to not make anything of it. I would say it's not unskillful in any particular way. If the mind grasps hold of it and says, this is something special, or this is great, I'm really glad this happens, and then when it stops happening, then you feel, oh, where's my night sky gone? Oh, it was so beautiful. What am I doing wrong? Uh, I used to have that, now I haven't got it. I wonder if this will develop or if uh, things are going to get even more colorful in the future, then that's the unskillful grasping of a perception. But in and of itself, like the painting on the wall behind you or the view out of a window into the outdoors, into a tree or the sky or the street, or here in the shrine of Amravati, it's just a set of perceptions. It's just a set of imagery, and the mind can make something of it or not. <laughs> we can be in a beautiful place, quote-unquote beautiful, so objectively beautiful, but yet we can be so keen to hold on to it or so determined to make it ours or to somehow keep it, just like I was talking about the sunset. You can't hold it, you can't keep it, it can't be owned. And so even though it is, conventionally speaking, so beautiful or delightful, the mind is creating suffering out of even a beautiful experience. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to focus on the Four Noble Truths and how it's really bringing attention to how the mind takes hold of the experience of the present. That's what makes a difference. We can be in a delightful, beautiful situation and be completely miserable. I'm sure I don't have to read anybody's mind. I cannot read people's minds. <laughs> but I would suspect that all of us have been in a situation where you're in some delightful place, it's a conventionally beautiful, perfect, and yet your mind is really upset, miserable. You're in, in conflict with the people around you, or you're feeling insecure, or you're worried about what people think of you, or you're worrying about something going on in your home. You can't enjoy the beautiful surroundings. So even though it's a perfect place, it's a delightful place, the mind is creating suffering around it. I often tell the story of a visitor here to Amravati a few years ago, she was telling me how she took the family on a holiday to an island in the Mediterranean. And they were always trying to find the perfect place for the kids, you know, a nice place to stay and a good beach. And it was absolutely perfect. The people who owned the little hotel were really friendly and the kids were very at home there and it was great food and the beach was wonderful. And she said, the whole 10 days we were there, I was trying to work out how we could book for next year. <laughs> so I made myself miserable trying to guarantee that we could go back to the same place the following year. I ruined my holiday by trying to keep hold of it and planning to get it again the following year. And the way that things worked, you couldn't make a booking for the next year in that place. Similarly, we can be in a really objectively painful situation. We've got an illness, you're in hospital with COVID, or you've got a broken leg, or there's some kind of crisis in the family, some difficulty or conflict, and something that you would never wish for or is not, say, objectively say, pleasant or you would look for, like a broken leg or a serious illness, but you can be completely at peace with it. You can be, say, in the presence of that painful feeling or a difficult situation, and you're totally okay with it. The mind isn't creating any dukkha around it. There's no second arrow on the physical plane or on the emotional plane. So it's always, what is the mind doing with a set of perceptions in the present? So with respect to this little question, yeah, I would say the mental imagery of a sky full of stars 
fine. <laughs> but the, the challenge is to just let it be there. If it never comes back again, fine. If it stays that way every time you sit and close your eyes, fine. If it turns into a colorful swirling galaxies, then fine. <laughs> it's that non-grasping and open quality of the heart. That's where the source of peace and ease is to be found. Second question. Dear Ajahn Amaro, I try to apply what you suggest regarding discomforts in the body that distract the mind, i.e. approach with openness, kindness, patience, and acceptance. But it seems to reveal even more deeper held tensions and becomes even more uncomfortable. Then I become more unsettled and fidgety, exclamation mark. Maybe I am unconsciously attached to an expectation that it will ease and relax the area of concern, which is creating more suffering for myself. I guess, question mark, exclamation mark. Any thought or advice would be much appreciated, more exclamation marks, meta and blessings. P.S. I have practiced for many years, but since being in post-operative recovery this year, my practice has been the hardest it has ever been. They are very good question. Sometimes the act of attention emphasizes the thing that we are attending to, and sometimes the way the mind picks up any experience, it can be very strongly habituated to that sense, this is my pain, my body, my issue, I've got to get this right, I don't want to get this wrong, I want it to be this way, I don't want it to be that way. And so we can be working with our mind, our, our body with a quality of sincerity and a sort of trying to do the right thing <laughs> and having that wholesome intention or skillful intention but the feeling of ownership, this is my experience of it, is that the more that it's my body, my mind, I've got to do something with this to make it right, and I'm not getting it right yet, I'm getting it wrong, and I need to do something, that the eye-making and mind-making is kind of coming in the back door and taking over that whole of that effort, the sincerity with which the mind, the heart is applying itself, is being co-opted by the habits of self-view. So I wouldn't necessarily assume that that's the case, but the fact that the person says, maybe I am unconsciously attached to an expectation, it will ease and relax the area of concern. And that's very commonly the case. And I'm not sure whether it would be for this person, but the sense of, I will have loving kindness towards this pain in order to make it go away. <laughs> I will open my heart to this difficult situation so that I don't have to feel it anymore. So that's more of a kind of negotiation and maneuvering, manipulating that is so easily goes on in our minds. So certainly my mind has done plenty of that in the past, whereby I'll love you completely as long as you go away. <laughs> like I have total open-hearted acceptance for this. That's sort of what's there on the surface. But underneath is a kind of aversion. I, I want it to be this way. I don't want it to be that way. I really hope this goes away. So that it's a challenge, but that sense of both letting go of self-view around working with discomfort, uncomfortable mental qualities or physical qualities, but also that sense of not negotiating or not maneuvering or you know i'll love you as long as you leave i'll love you completely as long as you leave me alone and go away that's not really loving something completely it's more what we need is an open-heartedness and that a kind of no conditions i remember many years ago in this very shrine room here at the at amravati some of us are physically here, but you're <laughs> the majority of the people on this retreat are virtually here in the shrine room. So many years ago, during the winter retreat, when Lumpur Sumedha was the abbot and teacher here, we would have days of four-hour sitting. So from one in the afternoon till five in the afternoon, a few times during the winter retreat, we'd have a four-hour sitting. And the rules of the four-hour sitting was that you had to stay on your meditation spot. You could change your posture, but you couldn't get up and leave the room and you couldn't move around. It was in these kind of very vigorous sort of take no prisoners era of the 
Dhamma practice here at Amravati is a kind of a lot of ardor and that kind of vigor in the air. Not that anything wrong with vigor, but there was a kind of an extra level of austerity that we adopted in those days. So anyway, we'd have these four-hour sittings, and the rule was we were allowed to change posture, but we had to stay on that one spot. So on this particular occasion, I was in an even more zealous and vigorous mood than many other people in the monastery. So I made the resolution for this four-hour sitting that not only would I be doing a four-hour sitting, but I wouldn't change my posture for the whole four hours, which I'd never sat without moving for that long before. And so overzealous resolution is kind of aditana, a resolution that I thought, this, you're an idiot, and what are you doing this for? This is going to be miserable. Yeah, you're going to injure yourself. This is totally stupid. And there was so much agitation and tension in my mind that I was in great discomfort after 10 minutes of sitting. And normally I could sit for an hour without any kind of discomfort. But just the, the sheer mental agitation around the idea of having determined to sit for four hours stirred the whole system up. So I was kind of in all kinds of aches and pains after 10 minutes. So anyway, I'd made this resolution. I was going to stick with it. And so the first hour, I sat here in this shrine with about 60 other people from the Amravati community. And an hour went by, and I was full of aches and pains and self-pity. And then after about an hour, I realized, this is it really interesting. You're sitting in a room with 60 other people, and you've totally forgotten that everybody else exists. You're so focused on your own discomfort, your own misery. You've forgotten everyone else is here. So I thought, well, okay, this is going to be painful and miserable, so I might as well use my time in some kind of beneficial way. So I opened my eyes and looked around the room and appreciated who was here. So I just started to spread loving kindness to the rest of the people in the room. Stop obsessing on me and my pain. And surprisingly enough, it shouldn't be surprising, within you know, five or ten minutes, I began to feel more comfortable. Oh, that's interesting. The more I stop thinking about myself and I just care about other people, then the less painful it is. So then I was just sitting here spreading loving kindness to everyone. So after a couple of hours had gone by, my body was quite painless. And this is why I bring it up now. It's like, oh, this is clever. So as long as I keep just sort of spreading the loving kindness, I won't have any pain. So it turned from a sincere spreading of loving kindness to a, a kind of the inner weasel, not that I've got anything against weasels, but the kind of weaselly, manipulating, maneuvering attitude. So it's like, ah, if I just do the trick of loving kindness, then I will get away with having no pain. Yay. And immediately that thought formed, the <laughs> pain started coming back into the system. So I realized, okay, this has to be 100% sincere. So whether there's pain or no pain, it doesn't really matter. I can just sit here spreading loving kindness to everybody and doing that as a practice, and if my body hurts, then okay, it doesn't matter. So that was really the challenge, to be that sort of sincere and open-hearted. No manipulation, no deals, no negotiation, just, okay, here it is, it's this way. And it was, so it was quite an insightful experience, because my mind is quite prone to maneuvering and weaseling, <laughs> finding it easy, sneaky ways around things, that in a kind of Maneuvering, manipulating is quite easy for my mind, unfortunately. <laughs> so it's familiar territory. So this was really a wonderful opportunity to appreciate that sense of sincerity. No strings, no deals, no negotiation, just in this moment, it's this way. And I'm not asking for anything for myself or not trying to find an easy way. Just here it is. And so to my amazement, when Lumpur Sumedha rang the bell at five o'clock, my first thought was, oh, that's a shame, that's over. <laughs> I was kind of really surprised. I'm not making any kind of claims, but I was really surprised that my first thought was disappointment. Like, oh, that's a shame, that's over. I was enjoying that. Then my second thought was, change your posture quickly <laughs> before you make another stupid resolution to sit here all night. <laughs> so I unwrapped my legs and got up and left with everybody else at five o'clock. So it's a challenge to have that quality of sincerity and letting go of that, I'll do this in order to get that. But 
my experience is that it's really worthwhile. And if there's a sense that there is that kind of negotiating or that expectation that's being formed, then that very expecting is a source of discontent, of dukkha. Going back to the other aspect that I was mentioning, it's very easy for those habits of self-view. This is my body, my mind. I want to do this. I don't want to do that. I want it to be this way. I don't want it to be that way. That, as I said a few times during this weekend, as long as effort is guided, driven by self-view, it's always going to have painful consequences. As long as it's I should, I must, even though you might be very dedicated and very sincere, as long as there's me and mine attached to it, necessarily there's dukkha, there's discord being generated in the system. And so that learning how to put forth effort to give direction to the practice free of self-view, that's really the kind of art form, really. it's a very important skill. But it's something that it can be hard to discern because often the meditation instruction that we get is that I should concentrate my mind, I should recognize the hindrances, I should let go of the hindrances, I should bring the chattering mind to a state of quietness. And the way that, say, the instructions that we read in a book or we hear in a Dhamma talk or we get on a retreat, it can be very much in the terms of you should do this, you shouldn't do that, you should be this way, you shouldn't be that way. In the suttas themselves, the languaging can be very much around that, say, much self-based guidance and instruction and effort. So it's tricky to do. And so sometimes we think that any kind of doing or any kind of effort is intrinsically stressful, is painful. Therefore, so peace must be about making no effort or not doing anything or not giving any direction. Any kind of desire or any sort of directionality that the mind is given, that somehow must be wrong or bad or that must be painful or stressful. But that's not the case. I would suggest that there has to be a way that we can make effort and that to be something that's done with peacefulness and leading to peacefulness. Otherwise, right effort, samavayama, couldn't be part of the Eightfold Path. That uh, fourth truth of the Eightfold Path, that, say, element of effort, couldn't be part of the path if any kind of effort, any kind of directionality, any kind of choosing was intrinsically stressful, if you follow the logic of that. So, if there's a quality of right effort, samavayamo, there has to be a way that effort can be made that is peaceful in its presence and peaceful in its result. And so I feel it's one of the things that's so helpful to get a feeling for how our practice, our efforts in meditation, can come from mindfulness and wisdom, attunement of the mind to the present situation. And as I've been saying about adjusting the posture, you know, like rather than, oh, I should sit up straight, rather sort of feeling the body in a slumped mode, just letting the mind be aware of that. And I like to do this from time to time as an example. So I am now slumping, those of you who can see me on your screens. I can't see myself, but I presume you can see me. So I'm now slumping. So I am not going to do anything apart from bringing awareness to my slumped back. So I didn't do anything, if you can take my word for it. (laughs) Rather, that's just bringing awareness to the body in a slumped posture, and then the universe adjusts itself. Awareness is the crucial ingredient. If there is awareness, it's like if the Buddha walks into the room, everybody straightens up. (laughs) If wisdom comes into the mind space and is present, then the system balances itself. And similarly, if there's if we're tense or uptight, then with awareness, then the system relaxes. So when effort is coming from that attunement, that awareness, then things are done, choices are made, direction is given, but it's not conducive to stressfulness. That kind of working, when it's guided by mindfulness and wisdom, is coming from that, then the result is peaceful. So in terms of that question about dealing with painful feelings, if 
looking at the sense of ownership. This is my pain or my physical difficulties. I'm the owner of this. I'm the one who's doing something with it. Looking at all those eyes and me's and minds and feeling that and letting that go, challenging that. Say, well, who is it that owns this body? Who is this working with it? Does this feeling have an owner? These ways of reflecting, I'll probably talk about this a little bit more maybe later today or tomorrow, but that way of using reflective inquiry to explore those feelings of ownership and doingness, you know, the I and me and mine, then as that is let go of, then the guiding principle can be that much more the quality of mindfulness and wisdom rather than me doing something. So next one. If we don't have craving, what do we follow? How do we direct and shape our lives? Very good question. So there are two different words for desire in Pali language. So in English, we use a terminology or language like, you know, desire is the cause of suffering when talking about the Four Noble Truths. But the desire that is the cause of dukkha, that has always got a painful result, is called tanha in Pali, trishna in Sanskrit if that's the correct pronunciation. And that's always got a quality of self in it. There's an element of I and me and mine in that. So it's self-centered craving. So probably the word craving is a better translation for tanha than desire. The other word that you can translate as desire in English is chanda. So tanha, T-A-N-H-A, tanha, is that the one that is in the Four Noble Truths. It's the cause of dukkha. Chanda. It can be a desire for something unwholesome. It can be desire for sense pleasure. But also it can be a desire for liberation, desire for the Dhamma, desire to do good. So that chanda is a necessary condition for any kind of spiritual development. So the Buddha talked about what are called the four bases of success. So to succeed at anything, whether it's cooking a meal, practicing meditation, going to the shops or robbing a bank, you know, whether it's wholesome, unwholesome or neutral, you need four qualities in order to succeed at anything. And the first is chanda. You need to be interested. That's to be the desire to cook a meal or to go to the shops or practice meditation. So chanda, also along with desire, you can translate it as interest, as zeal, enthusiasm. It's that engaging aspect of mind that says, yes, I'm interested. It's the yes. <laughs> that connecting with the present situation and having an interest to know about something, to do something, to bring something about. So in order for the Buddha to be enlightened, any being to be enlightened, there has to be chanda, there has to be interested to do something with this mind, with this life. Rather than being an obstacle, it's a necessary condition. It's a sine qua non, as it's put in Latin. It's a necessary condition. Then the second one of those four is energy, virya. So you have to be interested in practicing meditation or cooking a meal. You have to apply energy. You have to get up off the chair and, <laughs> and get the pots off the shelf and open the cupboard or the fridge and get the makings out to cook the meal. Or you have to get up out of your chair and go to the shops. So you have to get onto your cushion and start working with the mind. So chanda is the first one, interest, then energy, application. And then the third one is chitta, which in this instance means thinking about what it is that you want to do. If you want to go to the shops, okay, which shop do I want to go to? How can I get there? Can I walk? Do I need to drive? Do I go on the bus? I want to practice meditation. What kind of meditation should I be doing? What's going to be the best for me today? Or what am I interested in to do today? And those three work together. So interest, energy, and reflection, really, consideration. Interested to do something, applying the effort to do it and thinking about how's the best way to go about doing this. So those three are a unit. And the fourth one is after the fact, and that's reviewing. Okay, did I get to the shops? Did I buy the things that I needed? I've cooked the meal. How did it come out? Have I relieved my hunger? What did it taste like? Okay, now I've practiced meditation. What's the result of the meditation that I've practiced? I was trying to rob a bank. Did I succeed in robbing the bank? Did I get caught? How much money did I get? So again, it's morally neutral, these four qualities. I'm not advising people to rob banks. <laughs> Please don't consider that. But just indicating how these four are aspects of, of our lives that are, are needed for 
bringing about anything. And so that kind of desire doesn't have to have any kind of negative result. And as I say, it can be seen that it's a necessary condition for bringing about liberation, for bringing about the realization of enlightenment. In terms of the question, if we don't have craving, what do we follow? How do we direct and shape our lives? So when we apply mindfulness and wisdom to our lives, we consider, okay, what are the skills that I have? What's my living situation? What are my responsibilities? What is interesting? Then that kind of consideration of our situation and the world that we're part of as a human being and then seeing out of that consideration that interest then applying that aspect of, of energy okay i have this particular skill i'm a monk or i'm a doctor i'm a teacher or i have uh, skills as a gardener or i want to help people in the caring profession you know that's what i'd like to do or i'm interested to do that and now that i'm retired i would really like to write that novel i've been meaning to write for 30 years <laughs> so that consideration of what is going to be beneficial to this being to other beings so that giving of direction arises from attunement to your situation your skills your limitations then if that's done say a way that's genuinely attuned to reality to nature then what is wholesome and beneficial is going to be attractive and interesting and what is obstructive or confusing or divisive is going to be off-putting. There's a natural, if you like, moral quality that arises from wisdom. The heart is drawn towards what is going to be conducive to harmony and benefit and the well-being of yourself and others, and it's going to incline away from what is obstructive or painful or abusive or taking advantage of others in an uncaring way. So that in terms of if we don't have craving, what do we follow? I say we follow the skillful desires that are arising from that interest, that chanda, and directing and shaping our lives. Again, along the way, applying your mindfulness and wisdom, just seeing that fourth quality that we, we make choices, we take action in our workplace, in the family, in joining up with meditation retreats. <laughs> and then the fourth one, that reviewing, vimangsa, it's looking back at the results of what we've done. Okay, I joined in that weekend retreat, that online retreat with Amravati. What's the result of that? Okay, did that make me more happy and peaceful or did it make me more confused? Was I getting frustrated with my computer or was it, I really enjoyed it, but my family were giving me all kinds of grief for a month afterwards. Okay, so, so what does that tell me about how to handle those things in the future? So that vimangsa, that reviewing, is a really essential part. Okay, what was the result of what we were doing? Rather than just, okay, I think this is a good idea, I'll head in that direction and just keep going. It's like looking to see, okay, well, the, the GPS is telling me I've arrived at Amravati, but I'm in a farmyard. <laughs> this was happening a few years ago, that certain varieties of GPS were taking people, they sort of, written in the Amaravati address and typed it into their little GPS and it would bring them to a farm about three miles down the road. And so the farmer very patiently <laughs> would say, no, this isn't Amaravati. You, know, you need to go back onto the A4146, turn around and go through Great Gadsden. This is not Amaravati. But it says it's Amaravati on my gadget. You know, no, it's not. Turn around. <laughs> go a different way. So that Vimangsa is not just blindly following the directions or the plan, but okay, we have not got to where we were planning to go. This hasn't brought me to peacefulness. Yes, I've been following this practice or I've been cooking in this particular way, but the result is it isn't nourishing or it isn't peaceful, it isn't helpful. Okay, so what do I learn from this? And then that sense of reviewing, that's how we learn. We uh, say letting pleasant experiences, painful experiences, neutral experiences, they teach us if we let them. So that's what helps to give us direction, is they consciously acknowledging the results of what we've done, also the, how the world is around us. Not necessarily things that are connected with our own actions and choices, but you know, the way the world is working. So that we don't just decide, I want to do it this way, but it's like, well, 
like with COVID, you know, you have to keep checking what the regulations are because that keeps changing. The laws in different countries and different times keeps changing. So we might have something that we're interested in, planning to do, like I've got a ticket to go to America to visit a Bayagiri monastery later this year. I've got a ticket. <laughs> Whether I'll be able to get on a plane and actually go there in late October, early November, I don't know. I've got a plan to go to Thailand in December. I haven't got a ticket yet. I've got a plan. <laughs> Whether I'll be able to go or not, we'll see. So that we might have our intentions and our hopes and our plans, but part of what we learn from is what the world allows or is possible or other things that, that crop up that we need to pay attention to and we need to change our plans accordingly. Okay, next one. Is it possible to go over the 12 sections, please? Thank you. I can do. So very briefly, the 12 links of dependent origination. Uh, the first one is ignorance, avicca. And in the Pali use of the word ignorance, it doesn't mean not having information, but it more it means a lack of awareness, so not seeing things clearly. When we talk about ignorance in usual English usage, it means not having a piece of information or not understanding a certain subject. So in the Buddhist usage and the Pali usage of it, vijja means knowing or awareness. Avijja is not knowing or unawareness. So avijja is not seeing clearly. Then the second one, you know, number two on the clock, <laughs> I would say, is the sankhara, and that means formations. And so that's you can understand that as the basic division into subject and object that begins. And then the next one is vinyana or discriminative consciousness. The one after that is namarupa or mentality materiality. So it's very tricky to get a feeling for how those four work together. <laughs> and there was a second question from somebody else that said, could you explain the first four steps of the chain? Avijja to Namarupa. So it's tricky to get a feeling for that. But when I first heard about this or read about it in the suttas, it was completely befuddling. I couldn't get a sense of what it was talking about. But then for many years, Lumpo Sumato talked about Paticca Samupada and for three or four winter retreats here at Amravati, in that same era of the four hour sittings, <laughs> he gave many, many reflections about dependent origination. So at that time, I began to get a feel for how it works. So essentially what happens, that first four pieces of the sequence, as I understand it, it's where when the mind is, so drifts into unmindfulness, not seeing things clearly, then the sense of an observer and an observed starts to form. That sankhara, that the world of thingness, of a me here and a world out there, or me here looking at a memory or a thought or a mood within the mind, that starts to form. So that sankhara is that formations start to be conceived, or that sense of solidity in the world of perceptions and experience starts to form. Then that strengthens into consciousness and namarupa, mentality, materiality. And so they're a pair. In some of the teachings, the Buddha talks about those two, consciousness and mind and body, leaning on each other like a pair of sheaves of reeds, bundles of reeds leaning upon each other. So they support each other. Consciousness supports mind and body, mind and body supports consciousness. This isn't a definitive understanding, but one of the ways to see this working is that when the mind drifts into unawareness, then the sense of me here, the world there, subject, object, that strengthens. And the consciousness side of it is the subject feeling of me being aware, or me experiencing. And then the object side is namarupa, or the, the aspects of the physical world, the physical body, and the mental objects like perceptions and thoughts and emotions and so on and so forth. There are many PhDs have been written about dependent origination, there's different ways of interpreting it. But a helpful way of understanding this in the works of Venerable Nyanananda, a very eminent and wise Sri Lankan monk, 
He talks about this as the Nama Rupa Vijnana Vortex, like a whirlpool. You can understand it like with ignorance at the very beginning of the vortex, the whirlpool, and as it strengthens, it goes into Sankara, subject and object, and then strengthens into, here you have the consciousness and mind and body leaning upon each other. There's me here and the world there. Whether that's more confusing or that helps you to understand, I don't know, but that sense of those two, the feeling of the observer and the observed, the subject and the object, becoming inarguably real, like there's a me here who's the experiencer, and there's this, the world, or my memories, my thoughts, my feelings. They seem equally solid, and they kind of lean upon each other like the two bundles of reeds. So then the next one in the section, number five, six, and seven on the clock, <laughs> yeah, five, six, and seven. So then that, the number five after Namarupa is the six senses eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind. So then that is describing how the sense world, the experiential field, seems really solid, true, actual. And then that the senses being sort of invested in, then there's a sense contact, seeing, or hearing, feeling, thinking. That's pasa as a word for contact. Say light meets the eye and eye consciousness arises. Those three coming together is eye contact, the sound reaches the ear, and then the impulse goes down the auditory nerve to give rise to ear consciousness, then that's contact. Those three coming together is contact. So then that contact gives rise to feeling, which is number seven on the clock. And so after there's sense contact from sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought, then there is pleasant feeling, painful feeling, neutral feeling. So and then that's what I described as kind of key point to bring attention to. Say Goenkaji, many of you probably have done retreats through Goenkaji, expressions of Dhamma teaching. He focuses a lot on Vedana, on feeling, because that is the key place to bring attention, because that's where the mind can most fully and completely lose track and lose itself in sensory experiences. So then Feeling, Vedana, then brings us into the next section, 8, 9, and 10. So, Tana, Upadana, Bhava. The feeling conditions craving. So, that as I was talking about, that the mind crosses the bridge from I like to I want, I've got to have. And then, or I dislike, I hate, I can't stand. So, that then that is highlighted in the Four Noble Truths. The Buddha says that tanha, that's the, the cause of dukkha. It's like when the mind is able to focus on feeling, it's still not too difficult to establish a quality of mindfulness and awareness. It's easier for awareness and for mindfulness to be strengthened, to be established, so there can be a knowing of that feeling of like and dislike. When it's crossed the bridge into craving, then there's an investment. It's like, the mind is focused on that particular shape or that particular taste or that particular smell or sound. I hate that noise or I love that music. And that's a beautiful taste. That's delicious. This is really awful. How could they do this? <laughs> they completely ruined this dish. And the mind is latched onto a particular shape or sound or form, flavor, and sensation. So then craving, tanha, conditions clinging, upadana which means that I like goes to I want, and then I've got to have. There's a grasping, a taking hold. And then bhava is the moment of complete investment, where there's a commitment. I'm definitely going to buy that thing. It's, it's completely reasonable for me to hate this person or to, to hate this pain. It's that moment of commitment. Say so the mind is locked into that. It hasn't quite arrived at the, the fruition of that attachment, that grasping, but it's definitely on the way there. I like to quote Winnie the Pooh in this respect. In the House at Pooh Corner, those of you who are familiar with the A.A. Milne books about the little bear Winnie the Pooh and Christopher Robin and so on and so forth. For some of you, you might think, what's he talking about? Anyway, children's books from the 1920s. 
there's this little bear who is very fond of honey. And Winnie the Pooh is the kind of honey addict. And he said, you know, the best honey is the best thing in the world. And then in the house at Pooh Corner, I think in the first chapter, Pooh reflects and says, actually, the best thing in the world is not actually eating honey. It's when you know you're about to eat honey, but you haven't eaten it yet. That's really the best thing. So I thought A.A. Milne, the author, had quite an insight into Bawa, into becoming. <laughs> because that's the moment of maximum thrill. You've invested in, it's like when you go shopping. It's the moment where you've chosen the thing you want to get and you haven't quite received it yet. You've taken it to the counter and you've handed over the money and it's not quite yours yet. That's the moment of maximum thrill. As soon as it's actually in your hands and you've got it, you're starting to be disappointed. So they've done various psychological experiments. They wire people up with galvanic skin responders and they noticed actually the moment of maximum thrill, the kind of endorphin flush, is that, that just before you get the thing that you're guaranteed to get, that's the moment of maximum flush. <laughs> as soon as you've got what you wanted, then it's, yeah, you start to get disappointed. And I'm sure many of us can relate to, I see a few people smiling on the screen. Yeah, so we all know that disappointment of, I got what I wanted, damn it. <sighs> So bhava leads to jati, that's uh, having got what you wanted, and that's uh, birth, not just birth of babies, but birth in, principally in this instance, psychological birth, being born into that purchase, being born into that aversion, being born into that particular effort. And so that's the point of no turning back, and then necessarily having purchased that thing, then you've got to pay the bill. <laughs> You've got to live with the thing that you've acquired or that you've got to live with having shouted at someone, you were feeling irritated and upset with someone and you really let them have it and you felt great while you were letting them have it. And then as soon as that's over, then you start to feel, oh dear, now I've made this a really difficult relationship. When they walk in the room, then there's this awkwardness and should I apologize or should they apologize or how are we going to make this good? And so that's the Sokapari Deva Dukkha Domanasa Upayasa, the Aging, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. That's number 12 on the clock. That's the dukkha, or dissatisfaction, suffering. So that's the brief exposition on the 12 sections. I did actually, with an, an act of shameless self-promotion, I'll let you know, I wrote a book on this recently. If you are interested to find out more on this, and I can tell you've all got computers, because otherwise you couldn't be joining this retreat. So if you look on the Amravati website, on the publication section, there's a book called Catastrophe Apostrophe, the Buddha's teachings on dependent origination cessation. So a lot of what I've been talking about this weekend is there in the book, complete with some nifty diagrams as well. Well, I would shamelessly refer to them as nifty, even though I drew them myself. But a lot of this material is there in that book. So if you want to take a look at that, during this weekend catastrophe, apostrophe, then you'll find a lot of that material here. So the next one is talk the concept of the arrow, please. Well, pretty much said all there is to say about it. The arrow, in that teaching, the Salla Sutta, the Buddha only talks about physical pain and how that's unavoidable. But the second arrow is the resenting, negotiating, blaming, worrying, creating proliferation around that the second arrow has hit, that oh, the, the, the first arrow has hit, that, that's all the second arrow is that. And that's avoidable. Here In the original sutta, he only talks about physical pain, but I feel it's also applicable to mental pain when we have, say, someone close to us has passed away we feel grief we feel sadness someone a parent or a child or a partner has passed away we feel sadness we feel grief and that's a painful emotional state i would say that corresponds to the first arrow that's a natural feeling that arises from our human condition we grieve or regret you know if you remember something unpleasant that you've done something cruel something hurtful caused damage to others so when we remember that, there's a painful feeling. 
again, that's the first arrow. We don't have to add anything to that. We don't have to pretend it didn't happen. We don't have to suppress it or get away from it. Or like the feeling of grief, we can have tears running down our face, but we don't have to add a feeling of wrongness or resentment or I wish I didn't have this or if only I didn't have this sadness, then I, you know, I would be okay. We can feel grief or we can feel regret or painful emotions. And similarly be fully at peace with those so i think that's the only extra thing to say about the arrows and it's more challenging with mental states than it is with physical ones i would suggest but it's very helpful to be aware that we can have painful emotional states and not look at it as a quality of weakness you know sometimes people think well i'm a buddhist i've been meditating for years you know why do i feel sad that you know my partner has died my mother's just died. I shouldn't be upset. It's like when Lumpur Sumedho's mother died, he cried a lot. He was very tearful. But he's a great, highly accomplished spiritual being. When his mother died, there was a lot of grief. And so he was quite okay with tears running down his face. He was running a meditation retreat at the time. So a lot of the Dhamma talks revolved around grief and sadness. And he used the grief and his feelings became part of what he was teaching about. Again, with misunderstanding non-attachment, assuming that, oh, therefore I shouldn't involve myself or anything, I shouldn't do anything, I shouldn't feel anything, can be similarly misunderstood. In practicing Buddha Dhamma, we're not trying to make ourselves into unfeeling rocks. Or <laughs> Maybe some of us you know, would understand that rocks have feelings too, but <laughs> not to insult rocks, to say that we're trying to make ourselves emotionless or kind of say insensitive but that's not it at all in buddhist practice we are letting ourselves experience the, the full range of perceptions and aspects of this life but not creating complication around that so that if we feel sadness then we know that sad that painful feeling but we're not reacting to it we're not suppressing it we're not being overwhelmed by that but it's present it's there so we attune to that, but not attaching or identifying with it. So there's a respect and receptivity towards those feelings, but without identification, seeing that this harmful action way, so there's a feeling of sadness. Here it is. This is the texture, the tone of our human condition. It's like this. So without minimizing it or suppressing it, there's a feeling of it and attuning to it, but the heart is not limited or stressed or burdened by that. Okay, next. How to recreate the Manjushri Hall silent retreat ambience from Deer Park Institute in India, 2019, while remaining stuck at home? <laughs> well, I would say let go of the past is the best way of recreating the experience of that beauty and silence rather than, oh, that was so beautiful back then. How can I bring that beautiful feeling that I had two years ago and have it now? The way to find silence and serenity is in the attitude, just using the words, remaining stuck at home. That's <laughs> a kind of clue that I am stuck at home. If I wasn't here, if I was there, then I would be happy. That's creating dukkha right there. So I would say that in the spaciousness of attitude to here is home, it feels like this. It's got this noise, the presence of these people, these sounds, these smells, these shapes, these forms, here it is. You know, why should this particular living condition be something that is limiting or binding or burdensome? But freedom comes in our attitude, not in the objects of perception. It's in the attitude towards those objects of perception. You can be completely at peace in a crowded, noisy place. If we can, we find like in... Deer Park Institute, in you know, the foothills of the Himalayas, beautiful uh, open skies, you know, people floating through the sky and they're paragliding, <laughs> decorating the sky with their paragliding around Deer Park and us gathered and spending a week reflecting on Nibbana. That's a pretty sweet situation, the foothills of the Himalayas in the spring. But even if you're in a crowded apartment in Delhi or in Bangalore or on the London Underground, 
you can be completely at ease and at peace, even with people squished in around you. One of the, the most accomplished meditation practitioners in the current age was a woman called Deepama, and she lived in a small flat in India, a noisy town with her and her daughter in a tiny little flat. She was a very accomplished meditator. She had a very, very spacious mind. Her living situation <laughs> was really sort of cramped and noisy and not in the foothills of the Himalayas with the open skies above, but still through skillful attitude and her adept approach and working with her mind, she was able to develop great skills in her practice. So I would encourage her looking at that feeling of stuck at home and to challenge that. Say, well, who is stuck at home? Yeah. Is that which knows home, is that limited? Or is that awareness boundless? Does this, the shape of this room have to be something that creates a sense of pressure or obstruction or burden? And when, as we look at, at the mind and understand nature of the mind and awareness, that we realize that awareness can't really have a boundary. It doesn't really have any limits. It's only when the mind attaches to the objects that are around us, then we experience boundaries and limits and pressures. If the mind, say, learns how to embody that quality of awareness, then the perceptions that are known by that awareness might be kind of painful and cramped and, and limited. But the awareness is that which knows those perceptions. It's not limited by those perceptions. That makes sense. So freedom comes in the attitude, not in the objects, I would suggest. These bodies and our living situations necessarily have their boundaries, their forms. But that which knows the forms is formless. That which knows time is timeless. That which knows location is unlocated. It's free from that. It's free from identity. That which knows the person isn't a person. It knows personal qualities of the body, our age, our name, our gender, our nationality. It knows those qualities arising and passing. But that this awake, aware quality of vijja, of knowing, awareness, it's not female or male. It's not limited by place or time. Those qualities don't really apply. So I leave that for you to ponder. Whatever I've said now, hopefully it's of benefit. Please take it and use it. Whatever is not beneficial, please leave it aside.